Hello and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, bringing you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. It's me again, Alexandra, and I have another episode for you today. This time we won't talk much about the classical polar regions, so we are not going to talk about the Arctic or Antarctica. We go once again to the so-called Third Pole, the high Asian mountains and the Himalayan. My guest today is Jakob Steiner. He's a glacier hydrologist and works mainly in the high mountain Asian region. He's originally from Austria but did his PhD at the University in Utrecht in the Netherlands, where he focused on glacier runoff in high mountain Asia. For his studies, he spent quite some time in the field in Nepal and in Pakistan. But he also has fieldwork experience from Greenland, where he had an intensive time, as he shares with us in the episode. We also chat about uh, the differences in fieldwork in the polar regions and in Nepal, for example. The Asian culture is completely different than what we see in Greenland, for example. And Jakob highlights the importance of the connection between his research and the cooperations with the local communities. He has to interact and work closely with the local people and his research is also of direct impact for the people living there. He studies the glacier runoff which directly helps to determine the water availability in the cities and the villages and also the local water management of the people. By now Jakob also lives in Kathmandu in Nepal and works even closer with the local population. So you will get another view about field work on glaciers in this episode. Because we are not talking about glaciers in the Arctic but in the high mountain areas. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome again to Polar Times. Here comes the interview with Jakob. So welcome to the stage. My guest this week, Jakob Steiner. Hi Jakob, thanks for coming to Polar Times. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks a lot for inviting me and having me here. In this first part of the podcast, we call it the icebreaker. We would like to get to know you a little bit more. So my first question is, who are you and how did you come to the polar world? I came, I was born into some kind of polar world, I guess. I, I'm originally from Tyrol in, in Austria. Uh, I was born there. I, I lived there the, the first 18, 19 years of my life. So, so I grew up in the mountains. Uh, I grew up with uh, snow and ice. And also had a family grew up in a family that you know was very active in the mountains so we were we were out all the time and i was uh, i was used to to glaciers as something that you would cross on your skis to to the rest of the cryosphere well yeah snow was always around then later professionally I, I, I when i was at high school i actually i was more interested in languages and and i thought i would i would actually do that in, in at university i studied uh, i started to study music never really had a focus on on the natural sciences I I was interested in water, um, so that's that's also how I professionally then I think I, I reached the, the polar world again. I, I knew I at uh, after after high school eventually I said yeah I really would like to to study something with uh, related to hydraulic engineering um, and hydrology, and that's what I did. I, I studied uh, environmental engineering in Switzerland by chance. Did my my master's only, so my bachelor's I still did in agricultural water management, and my bachelor's and uh, my master's then on uh, on debris covered glaciers in in the Himalaya uh, in in the group with Francesco Pelliciotti, and that was a, a great opportunity. And since then, I'm actually you know that's a couple of years back. Since then, I'm I'm, I'm stuck with these debris covered glaciers as part of my research. So yeah, that's how I ended up professionally in 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 the field, I guess, and. By by luck and by knowing very cool scientists and having very cool friends who, who work in, in in the Arctic as well, so in Greenland, I also had the chance to to not only work on the third pole in the Himalaya, but also yeah, work in, in Greenland. I guess it's a kind of a unique opportunity to get more than one pole to see in your life and to do your fieldwork in, in several parts of glaciated regions. What catches you more and what is more exciting for you? For me, so, so doing science, what, what, what is always important are, are, are the humans that are associated to it. So the collaborators that I, you know, that, that I do research with and I write papers with, but also the people in the field. From that aspect, I guess uh, working in the Himalaya seems more, is, is, is closer to my heart because we, 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 do, uh, we do work closely to, 
well, we have to pass villages when we walk to our field sites. And so we have to, uh, we have to walk days uh, before we actually reach our first camp and, and before we reach the first glacier and our first stations when we do field work in the Himalaya. And when we do that, we stay in villages and we stay with the people there and, and, and we talk with them and uh, we, we have interactions about very mundane, mundane things, but also about what we do and why we do it. And that I enjoy a lot. Um, in Greenland, first, when I, well, luckily, when I came to Greenland the first time, I came there for, um, for skiing. Uh, I arrived in Nuuk and we, for, for more than a week, we went uh, backcountry skiing with friends. Uh, but I was in the middle of nowhere. And so there, there were some people dropped us off in a boat and then we, <laughs> we, we hiked. Uh, so, so there were our friends around that was super exciting, but the, the, there were no local people along the way. Those locals I met in, in Nuuk, we went to the bars you know, many, many evenings and uh, there we had a lot of great interaction. So it, they took me a while to get a feeling of the people in, 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 in our field site. And uh, three years ago, we hiked uh, through Ewigheitsfjorden. Uh, so just out of, from Kangalusuak a bit further out. We did a 10-day uh, walk. We again dropped, got dropped off with a boat. And then there was just three of us. We were hiking in the middle of nowhere. Only, um, I was going to say yaks. We have yaks here, but of course, muskox. Only muskox and reindeer. And then after after seven days, we suddenly saw a tent and there were Greenlanders who were hunting in, you know, very, very far away. It felt like very far away, but from them, for them, that was hunting ground. And this was the first time that I, you know, that I felt away from, in Greenland, away from the scientific community in a place that people call home. I had the chance to get the experience to, to see Greenland from that angle. And... Uh, so, so, you know, in both places, I, I had that, uh, the possibility to, to see the people who live in this, in, in our research field, kind of, which, yeah, to me is important because I think I, I, I would find it very fascinating to go to Antarctica as well, definitely. And there are, I mean, it's perhaps a cliche, but what I always remember is Werner Herzog's film about uh, people who work in Antarctica. There are people there as well. And there great characters but it is a bit different because because uh, no one really calls it their home where they grew up and where their forefathers live i think that's one one thing that drives me in science as well and uh, that i uh, i was lucky to have in, in in both of my field sites and get get that aspect apart from apart from the research i do which is really very uh, yeah nearly no social aspect whatsoever uh, it's a pure natural science yeah, I guess on the one side, in the Himalaya, you're forced to collaborate with the local people because I guess otherwise you cannot pass on the trails. And in Greenland, it's more that you really have to search for the people to connect with them because they're not, not around. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because of the lot of the research that we do here, also, we do it with the argument that we want to say something about water resources in Asia, you know, that, that water that is available to a large part of the population in the region. So all these papers, they start with these lines of saying, you know, so and so many millions of people are dependent on water resources, blah, blah, blah. So it, it, it kind of only makes sense. It would be very weird if we would be indifferent to, to the people who we are actually talking about in our papers. The, the work that I do in, in Greenland, uh, turbulence over the ice sheet and, and the ice margin, it has less direct, uh, it has also less direct relevance for, for the local population, I guess. And yes, exactly. There we have, well, I, I, I had to search for them more. But fortunately, I really enjoy um, hanging out in bars in the evenings. And that is, that is something that I did when I was uh, young in, in Austria already. And especially with, uh, with a very good friend, uh, uh, who is probably going to hate that, uh, that I mention him here, um, who is also called Jakob and who is a glaciologist in, in the University of Graz. And he, he lived in Greenland. And uh, we, we, we uh, you know, we, we spent many, many evenings in bars in Innsbruck, in, in our hometown. But he was also a great guide in bars in Greenland. And, uh, and, and there you, yeah, you sit and you chat and you do karaoke. And I got to know a lot of interesting people. I think that that helped. Because in our field site, in, in both the field sites that I worked in in Greenland, we had to be flown in with a helicopter and there was really no one, no one else around. Yeah, I guess if you do field for in Greenland, you always are kind of in the luxury position that you don't connect with the local people. You only need them to be your logistical partner, but you don't have to interact with them. Yeah. Before going 
more to your field studies, I would be more interested into, um, you said that you studied music as well. Did you study the music and hydrological engineering at the same time? And did you also finish it? And how did that influence your life? Uh, so I, I, I studied it in parallel. I studied uh, so classical music, violoncello in, uh, in Innsbruck. So my professor is, is, is in Munich with the, in, with the Munich Philharmonics. And at the same time, I studied environmental engineering in Zurich. Uh, that came to be because I, well, I always played the cello since I was very small. And at one point I had to decide whether I, you know, did I want to stick to it? Did I want to do it seriously or not? This was about when I was 16 or 17, which is quite late already anyway to start university then for music. But I, I applied and I, I got in and I was motivated. But I also realized that, you know, my talent was limited. I, I always say if I, you know, if, if, if there was something that, that I would have rather done than the work I do now is, you know, just be a professional musician. But there, there are a couple of things that I guess I lack that did not, uh, where I felt I couldn't make it. And one was also that I get easily distracted by other things that I'm interested in. And what I do now, I'm also very interested in. So I did not focus enough on music. I finished the studies. So I, uh, I, I completed my, it's called Concert Diplom in German, uh, in Violoncello. And uh, because I studied it in Innsbruck and I studied engineering in Zurich, this was relatively close. So luckily a direct train connection between the two towns. So I could commute every week between the two places because music university is, uh, it's basically just uh, the, the weekly, uh, the weekly uh, interaction with your professor uh, rather than many lectures during the week. It was possible to do that. I, uh, I just had to come for that once a week. And then I could go back to Zurich for my normal lectures. This was, of course, tough at times, but it also helped me to structure, you know, to structure my day. I had to be a lot more disciplined during this time because I had to, most of my time was used for music. I had to, um, I had to practice hours a day. Um, so I had to be a bit more focused for my, for my, uh, for my studies in Zurich. I did party too, but perhaps a bit less than I could have. And uh, this, yeah, I think I learned something from that. I, perhaps you can compare it to what I see now. So I don't have kids yet, um, but many of my friends, uh, they they are parents now, some of them since a couple of years already. And I see it with them that, they, you know, since they are parents, they are a lot more, they seem to be a lot more efficient because they know that time is precious and they have to structure the day a lot better. Uh, I still get up in the morning and I don't know, I. Uh, yeah, I read my emails. I, I wonder whether I should get out of bed or not. And uh, and in the evening after work, when I get home, I I watch a couple of YouTube videos. If I would have kids at home, I think this wouldn't work. And this this part of uh, this this is what I learned from music. I had to be very disciplined. And in this way, it it, it really helped me um, for my natural science career. I think um, it also helped me because it gave me a different take and view on. On, on everything really on, on creativity on a different form of creativity that you that you need in that you need in music than what you need in natural sciences and and also i'm not so scared of you know standing on a stage or giving a presentation because during my studies i had to play concerts in front of like alone on a stage in front of many people uh, you you lose that uh, yeah you lose that stage fright pretty quickly if you still have that then then anyway you'd be lost in music I guess it's a very valuable uh, skill to have for science as well. Is there a way to connect uh, both parts, the music and the science? There are probably, yeah, there, there, there are probably ways. Uh, one disadvantage with my instrument is that it's not an instrument that you can carry around. I, I'm really happy that I studied cello. I love the instrument. And so when I lived in Pakistan, I also learned the tabla, which is a percussion instrument, which is smaller. And that's, that's already more handy to take around. But if there was one other instrument that I would have rather learned, and I hope that, you know, I'm not too old yet to be able to start it eventually, it's the C harmonica. I don't even know what that is called in English. <laughs> but <either>. of course, <laughs> that is a very traditional, I mean, for you as well, uh, that is a very traditional instrument in, in, in our part in Austria, in southern Germany and in Switzerland, that, that you can take everywhere. And it works, it works in classical music. You can go, but you can also go to a, to a very old, uh, some, some restaurants, a bar in a village and, and sit behind, uh, you know, sit behind a table and just play. So my, my brother-in-law, he, he, he manages to do that. And I admire that a lot because uh, this is a different form of uh, you know, spontaneous musicality, which I don't have. I, 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 I studied music, you know, really sheet music. So you, you, you learn, uh, yeah. 
you learn it more like mathematics and less from less from the creative uh, less from the creative side more and that's yeah i think that's also in inside of me i'm more the the mathematical character which is probably why i ended up in natural sciences but i would sometimes i would wish i would be a bit more uh, you know spontaneous and just be able to sit and, uh, and 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 play the harmonica and with the cello that is that is very challenging simply because of the of the shape and I cannot take it to field work and just play. It's also not so uh, societal. So it's more like being uh, in a classical music and the harmonics is like, as far as I remember from my childhood, there's always someone just sitting somewhere and it's improvising. And exactly. it's just fun to listen to. And I guess for the person who does playing it, it's also just fun to play and you don't have to follow any rules. Like exactly. just a bit more classical music. Oh, but that's uh, inspiring if you if you're able as a student to focus on two different um, studies. Um, Yeah, I can also agree that people with uh, kids, they they seem to be a bit more effective. They can uh, structure their time a bit better <laughs> in the way that they yeah. finish their work at some point and then the kids have the time in the evening. Yeah, I, I don't I don't want to say that I want to have kids because I want to be more uh, efficient in future. But perhaps that will, <laughs> when hopefully we will have kids once, then this may be, may be one positive side effect. So you mentioned you made your master's in Zurich and then uh, I looked up, you did your PhD in Utrecht and now you're in Kathmandu in Nepal. Yes. And Fieldwork in Greenland. How does yes. that all fit together and how did you end up in Nepal right now? How does it all fit together? Um, I always like to move around if there is, uh, you know, when, when, when I, so from Austria, I, after high school, I moved to Pakistan. I lived there for one and a half years. Then I came back to Europe I, to, to study in Zurich and, and I deliberately went, I wanted to, to study abroad. I did not want to stay in, in, in Austria. I, I was in, in, in Zurich for quite a while. So I did my bachelor's and my master's and, and then continued working there at the company. And I enjoyed it a lot. It's uh, so I enjoyed the university. It was absolutely fantastic. So can recommend a university to do a master's in or bachelor's as well. And I was very very happy there. But I also liked the town a lot. So I could you know or me and my girlfriend we could also imagine going back. Um, But still, after I think nine years, I felt like I needed, uh, you know, if I, if I wanted, especially if I wanted to stay in academia, I needed a change of, of, of place. Uh, I could have I could have done a PhD at ETH as well. I, I wanted to go to, to, to try again from zero. I enjoy starting from zero, I guess, for a couple of reasons. I enjoy learning a new language. I yeah, I enjoy finding new bars. <laughs> uh, and that's that, that uh, fortunately, when I was looking, um, Uh, Walter Immersale, so my, my PhD supervisor, he was, he just had gotten a, a, a new grant and he was looking for PhD students. And I applied for that, uh, for one of those positions and, and I got that as well. And uh, that really fit my, my profile and my motivation because it was clear that it would include um, field work. So I was going to be outside. And yeah, and that's where, you know, I, I, I also enjoyed Utrecht tons. So it's an, a fantastic city. It was a great university to work in. But for us, from, from, so my, my girlfriend already had gotten a job in Pakistan. I really, so I lived in Pakistan before. I enjoyed the country a lot. And it was clear that if we would move again somewhere and if we would move to Asia, then it was now. And it also actually matched with, uh, with what I did in my PhD. So I was looking at high mountain catchment hydrology and the cryosphere in, in the HKH and in the Himalaya at Karakoram. So coming to Nepal made sense um, for, for professional reasons. Um, and again, I mean, this is, this is the luck part of it. There was a position that was, you know, that was opening. And so I was actually reluctant to apply for it first because I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't super excited about Kathmandu. But I wasn't super excited about going to the Netherlands either. And I wasn't super excited about going to Zurich in the beginning. So when you come from Austria, everyone, um, everyone goes like, why do you know, why the hell do you go to Zurich? It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's super expensive and people are extremely boring. And perhaps because of that, I, you know, I said, well, then I'm just going to do it because, uh, and, and I went and, you know, I, at least for myself, I could prove them that it's, well, it, it is expensive, but if you have a job there, then, then it's fine. And, And the people were great. And when I then, there was a position in the Netherlands, people were saying, oh my God, Jesus Christ, flat country. Why the hell would you go to the Netherlands? It's like, it's so boring. No? It's like, no mountains. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. No mountains. That's true. Or very, very small ones. But 
you know, when I go when I go to the mountains, I I can still do that in a dedicated uh, manner and for a couple of weeks, and I can still go to the mountains even from the Netherlands. So I, it was the same now for Kathmandu. I wasn't super excited about Kathmandu. I would have preferred actually to go to, to, to Pakistan as well. And as I was always more fascinated by the country, I think. But the position here is, is fantastic. The, the opportunities here, I think, that I have are great. And um, yeah, I'm trying to make it work again from, it's not completely zero, but it's again a new, a new spot to start in. And that's what I find super exciting that, you know, I have to... I have to learn a new language. Um, I get so actually just before we started talking. Now I had my Nepali course, which I I enjoy like a small kid. You know, you sit there and nobody expects that you have to know anything. Uh, so I can I can make mistakes all the time. Uh, I can uh, I can ask stupid questions constantly. This is super nice. And uh, and and when I walk around in my neighborhood here, I yeah, it's it's I know Nepal now bit already because I did fieldwork here before but still there are many things that I have to learn that are different in this culture here and were very different in the Netherlands as well um, so this, this is something this has nothing to do specifically with my work but uh, I find it super exciting to to get to know a new place and you know at, at one point when perhaps if, if if I stayed away long enough from from Tyrol and Austria and Perhaps I find it, it's, it's new again to me and I will find it exciting enough to, to return. But uh, for now, me and my girlfriend, we are quite happy being in, in, in different environments. Yeah, I get it that uh, moving around can somehow makes you happy at some point. And I guess it's just in academia, you are supposed to move around and you have to be flexible. And some people see it as a downside. But if you just say, well, I like it and I just, I like it to try out new things, then you can also see it as a highlight of your academic career. Well, I agree forever. This is not something that I would want to do. Uh, that's also why, you know, we said, okay, now we, we do, we, we move, uh, perhaps, you know, I don't know how, I don't want to do this many more times. I also feel that my, my, my batteries have been empty for a long time, but, uh, they, they don't, they don't recharge so well anymore. Um, as they they would have you know 15 years ago i, I also feel that time coming when we, we have to find a spot where, where we stay and yes you're right of course academia also expects it from you and to some degree i also think that is good it doesn't have to be that you that you fly around the globe all the time it can also be shorter distances but i think it's it helps you also writing papers to have to work with different people you know, that you have that you accept that there are different characters and that that you learn how to how you have to communicate with different people. I think if you also, if you want to become a professor, actually these are skills that may be more useful than scientific skills uh, to be able to, 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 to learn to, yeah, to, to, to work with different characters and to learn how different characters react to how you behave. Because when, you know, when we talk about what is going wrong in academia, then many things are, are, are going wrong because, because that doesn't, that awareness is not there and i think because people don't have not not, not everyone has people skills and if if more people would have more people skills and i think those you learn if you if you are challenged if you're challenged to work with different characters and that doesn't have to be in in a different country you can even i guess i could have stayed in austria you know if i would move to vienna this this would have been a bigger culture shock than for me than going to Zurich. people are uh they they look at me as a hilly billy there and in zurich they're more like yeah you also have a weird accent so yeah it's fine yeah you don't have to you don't have to travel so far it's it, it for me and it helped me as a as a person as well and i think i, I gained a lot of yeah a lot of skills that are important to me yeah, i think in a scientific career it's always important to get to know different lots of different diversities and different kind of people because everybody just has another thinking and we are in europe maybe more similar than people in other parts of the world and if you just and you don't have to move to another country as you said you just have to broaden your horizon and just to work and talk to different people yeah. and i guess also especially for your focus with the the focus on the himalayan it's very important to know the people who live there and also to know what the needs of the people there are so are you now a bit uh, are you closer to the people and can you better connect with them and communicate your needs, your needs for fieldwork, and but also consider their needs, um, so that you know better what they need out of your research for their daily life. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I mean, it helps, of course, talking to the people in the village and, and learning from them. 
but for for what we do on a larger scale in research it's it's important to 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 talk to stakeholders on a higher level in in in, in positions that make decisions for for the country for the catchment for the watershed but that is also that is important that's into the job that i that i do here at ECMOD, which is an in, uh, which is a, an institute that so we do a lot of research but there, it's a link between research and and policy and uh, and the needs of stakeholders so you have to interact with a lot of different stakeholders of your projects and uh, so yeah you get to know politicians you get to know people working in other think tanks who who influence um, decisions in these countries. Often it's about here, when you talk about climate change, it's about resilience and mitigation, um, not so much about you know, uh, how, how to reduce the emissions perhaps, because of course, many of the effects of climate change are felt here directly. While relatively speaking, there is a relatively contribution, a relatively little contribution to, um, to, to global change. And this is a huge topic here. And when, when we write papers, where we often even write very clear recommendations, of course, it makes sense if we if we know how these recommendations can even be processed here. And for that, we have to talk to to the decision makers here. So this may not be the farmer in the field, right? Because he or she has no agency over larger decisions. But from them, we can we can learn whether these decisions that are being taken at the mid-level or at the upper level actually have any effect. So EasyMod is, is, uh, is responsible kind of for the whole region, so for all the partner countries of the Himalaya, Hindu Kush, uh, sorry, the Hindu Kush uh, um, Himalaya arch, the decision makers in all these countries. And, and it's important and helpful to, to, to meet with them and get their experience and, and see what they understand and what they don't understand yet and also see what we don't understand yet, that ideally should also improve the quality of our research. So not so much on the natural science side, perhaps, but on the how we communicate it and, and also what is, what is meaningful and what may be less relevant um, at the moment or in the near future. And yeah, since I, I do work on the cryosphere, but a lot of the, the, the questions, the basic motivations that we have for the work here is, is actually the, the downstream water use in in whatever in whatever form um, that interaction with people is uh, I think is essential yeah. and also I've started during my PhD work a bit more on natural hazards that also related to the cryosphere and again there it matters a great deal that, that you know the people who who are affected but also those who make decisions to possibly mitigate these uh, these hazards. And, it's super interesting if you can really uh, follow one project from the beginning to the end and that you know all the stakeholders and all the, the people involved. I guess a lot of times it's just that you get your small topic and you have to work on the specific question and you never see the outcome and the effect of that. Well, yeah, you would hope that there are outcomes, not always, there are not always outcomes. Uh, yeah. But when you start, you have an outcome somewhere yeah, as a vision. That's also the frustrating part of it, I guess, um, is that uh, sometimes it's just too much and it doesn't work. I mean, that's the, the biggest disadvantage, I think, from, my, from the way I do science is that it's a bit scattered. So, but that already started with me being interested actually more in music and, you know, than doing this. And uh, so, yeah, sometimes I lose the, the chance to, to focus on just one thing. And sometimes it's good to just focus on one thing. But um, yeah, that's a, that's a trade-off that, you know, to, to some degree you have to make. You have to decide also for yourself what why you are in science and what you actually want to do. And to me, teaching was in Utrecht and, and also here now supervising the junior staff is very important. So that's, that, that is also an aspect that of course takes time away from some dedicated research that I could do in, in place of it. But um, yeah, to me, it makes a lot of sense. And, and that's where it also makes sense in terms of what my career path was so far. I, most of my colleagues from my masters did not do a PhD. They went into private industry because we were, yeah, we studied environmental engineering. So you would go to a company that would actually build stuff or plan stuff and, and not write papers that hardly anyone reads. I guess it's also one of the nice parts about being in academia that you just have many different projects and different collaborators. And then it might be that your work is sometimes spread out across many projects, but it's also, that's also the, the way of uh, doing science that you just have different fields and then you can connect everything to, to one project. Yeah, absolutely. 
That is, I, that, that's how I still, I mean, I am officially still a PhD student, you know, and I, I want to feel like a student. I hope I still can feel like a student after my PhD. Because, yeah, working in different projects where, where I'm not the, the lead and where my co-expertise is not the most, my, my, my expertise is not the, the core of, of the project, helps me to, like, you know, like with learning Nepali or like with learning Dutch, I can start a little bit at zero. I can try to bring in what I can do. But I'm still allowed to ask stupid questions because, uh, yeah, because I, I still have to learn. And, and hopefully when I learn and bring in my stuff, we can actually produce something that is that is more meaningful in the, in the long run. And, uh, and, and and that was also true for my work where I, I was lucky enough to, to work with people who had very different backgrounds and who were who, who were and who are much better in, 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 in many of the craftsphere aspects um, that, that we work on. I had a chance to learn. And I, I, I rather I like to talk when I'm in, in the bar and otherwise. And... Do you have an example on how the collaboration between stakeholders and the local community and the scientific community and uh, Himalayan, how does how it all works together and how you can how they can benefit from your work and how you benefit from their work or how they influence your fieldwork? Is it always a, a positive benefit or is it also sometimes a disadvantage that you have to consider their needs? It should never be a disadvantage. It is a disadvantage if you consider it annoying. We, we have many problems in our main field site in Nepal because people are suspicious um, what we do here, how, how this is exactly what, what their benefit is out of this because we, we don't go there and pay them. We don't leave anything behind apart from metal structures that measure obscure things. So this has not always been, um, has not always been easy and, and it's something that you know, we still we still have to learn a lot. And actually, currently we are working on a project where we are trying to where we are trying to combine um, knowledge on avalanches from both sides, from the purely natural scientific point of view. So that's what we do. But then you ask the you ask the local population, perhaps first, you know, where where do avalanches happen? Where do they matter? In many locations, perhaps they don't care because they never go there. And also, how do they experience them? And and what does you know? This then also goes into yeah. This this goes into anthropology and 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 and, uh, and language studies in many different uh, languages. There are there are multiple names for for something that we have only one name for, and that has a reason. Right? And and these are things that they, they you know. I don't write papers about these kind of things, but I, I'm trying to contribute to in in this case now we're trying to contribute to a project where the people on on the social science they they bring in their insight and the locals bring in their insight and we hope to to produce better and more targeted results in um, for in this case yeah for avalanche where and how avalanches happen and whether this is going to be more frequent in future or not but I don't have many so this is one example where there is there is now intensified interaction but this is a relatively new project there has been there have been attempts of interaction but it has never been easy. One one problem is the language barrier. Uh, even in mountainous areas, like I mean, when yeah, that's what I said before. When I speak German, then 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 I have a very strong accent. And here, people sometimes in the valleys they speak a completely different language. So even people who grew up in Kathmandu, they may not be able to understand their native language. So they have to speak a different language to each other. So they have Nepali, of course, which they talk to each other, but that may not be the language. And in our case, it's not the language that the people locally speak. So there is already some the, the things that get lost in translation, and that for for people who come from abroad who only speak English, of course, then sometimes there is no communication at all, or it's just with uh, hands and feet, as we say in German. And that you have everywhere, uh, and especially in mountains where languages change very, you know, they change like precipitation patterns. There, of course, that's the first the first issue why 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 this interaction seldom goes very well. Or it takes a lot of commitment and a lot of time that you spend in a region until you build up a relationship that you can actually benefit from each other. And also to learn, you know, you have to learn local politics because you realize that for the first two years, you always talked of that, to that one person that had very vested interests in that village. And, and actually more than 50% of the village was of a completely different opinion. But that person made sure that you never talked to them because uh, it was more beneficial to them, you know, if you would if you would keep to if you would keep to that side of the village so and it's 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 very difficult to see through local politics 
so that is uh, yeah but we we are trying um, to 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 improve that and uh, to have more structured and, and more intense communication that goes both ways and that doesn't because still a lot in in research it's about you know we we, we come with a solution which doesn't i so when when i talk to people here i always bring examples from my lectures in switzerland where where in in, uh, in in hydraulic engineering and in glaciology as well. So actually, my only glaciology lecture that I did was with Martin Funk, which was, you know, he's a he's a, he's a great glaciologist and a great professor, and he always told this story about about the glacial lake that that was supposed to be drained artificially. And the experts from ETH, from the you know smart university, came and they all planned it, and a lot of money was invested from the from the local municipality as well to. To drain it artificially and then and then it drained itself without any damage and they had invested all this money and, and, and you know, people were saying oh you know these guys again from zurich they they think they are smart and 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 there were other examples as well for hydropower production where you know many many smart minds put equations in and they completely calculated it wrong and uh, and then people were losing complete trust in 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 scientists because Scientists often they don't go first and ask what is you know what you already know and yeah. and from where I'm from in Tyrol it's the same with avalanches there are you know people have lived with avalanches their whole life so there's of course a lot of knowledge there so often be of you know we should first go and perhaps ask and see what's already known and and then try to overparameterize a model that uh, that may add something to it but we have to know first what is there already yeah. sorry that was that was quite meandering but. Uh, I think that's a yeah that, that's a challenge that we don't only have in in, in the region here. That's, that's if you work in at least in the Alps as well, that uh, is similar. I guess in most of the, the polar regions, it's so well structured. Who's responsible for what, and who's the logistical partner, and who's supposed to be contacted if you want to do something, and which regulations you have to follow. And as soon as you're outside of the western polar regions, it gets much more complicated. I guess. Yeah, and it, it's so. things yeah. you don't uh, think about if you read a paper about one hydrology, you don't think about the challenges you have to face before you can actually get to your data. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a big challenge. Is that, yeah, challenge that we also have in, in when we write papers, actually, when we have to justify why our data looks so weird. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's not the data isn't wrong. And, you know, what we show is, is what we actually measured. But uh, there, there are many there are many issues with it, and our time series often have a lot of holes and are very short compared to what you would collect elsewhere. Even though the next settlement is much closer than than if you would put a station on the sea ice in the Arctic, uh, or put a station uh, you know somewhere in the Antarctica. But yes, getting it there and getting it maintained and getting the quality of material here, like getting a proper battery to run your AWS, you, uh, is uh, is a pain. Yeah, and it's already it's already quite advanced in Nepal. Actually, you know, we are we are Isimod is establishing mass balance programs in Afghanistan. Wow. Um, the basic infrastructure is just not there, and and the people have to deal with the fact that the, the country is at war. So yeah, you have to factor that in. You cannot just say, "Come on, you know, go back to Kabul and and order a station, and it will be shipped, and you're gonna put it up, and it's gonna run." And it's like, no, that doesn't work. It's a lot more patience. That's also why it was tough for us to plan the PhD. You have a lot of ideas, and, and you think, oh, we're just gonna put the station there, and it's gonna run for two years, and you get the data, <laughs> which is a challenge for any PhD, right? Yeah. So uh, this is not that I'm not saying that we are special, but. Uh, they kind of added to the, the general problem of of, of, uh, um, of getting actually the data that you would hope that, that you would get. Here, so many other things can go wrong before you can even you know put the cable into the data loader. How often can you revisit your stations? I guess it's not always possible that you go there every couple of months to just plug and play and, and get your data. No, so twice a year we generally go. Yeah before monsoon and, and after monsoon for example last year was you know was nearly nothing and uh, yeah. so it was just one mission to really look at uh, at the most important station and that had fallen over of course already because it had molten out of the ice and so that and 2015 was a big earthquake that destroyed a lot of material uh so yeah this and it, and it's not so easy to i hope that i can go more often now because i'm closer i don't fly in from europe anymore but still, when to our field site, so to our first station, it's you know it's a full, it's about nine days, no, sorry, nine hours of cheap ride from Kathmandu, and then another three days of walking, and and then you're only at the last village, and and, and you you start to sort your gear and everything. 
So if you forgot something, yeah, you. Oh, but this is also the case in the, in the Arctic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you forgot something, you forgot something. But then. That's the golden rule: never run out of spare parts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's a, that's globally. That's that's true. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm envious sometimes of, you know, catchment hydrologists in Switzerland who who can uh, who can uh, bike to their to their field site. Um, yeah, yeah, that's another. It, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful to have these places because they are they are. Uh, a super important benchmark for what we are trying to do in places where where, where it's much more difficult to keep up continuous uh, measurements. Do you have any fun times to share with us from your field work? What was uh, your funniest story or your story which you remembered most from your field work which you want to share with us? Um, one specific story, I mean, the, the, the fun stories, the, the tons, of course, because a lot happens. One of the craziest trips I did was uh, field work uh, north of Thule in northern Greenland. So we, we have a field site. I mean, it's not our field site, but it's a pretty cool field site uh, on the margin between an ice cap and the ice sheet. That's, it's about a half an hour flight from with the helicopter from Thule Airbase. So it was already quite an adventure to get to to get to that airbase because that's officially the US. It's an American yeah. airbase. It's not so easy with the US. Exactly. So that, that that was that was quite a challenge already. And then a super weird place to be in with many, many, many uh yeah, many super interesting people that, that live there. But uh, and then, then we got flown out. So we yeah, yeah, we chartered the helicopter and we, we flew to our field site and then we we had three tents. So there were three of us. So these are three friends from Innsbruck, actually, who yeah, who are now at all, they are all different places, but we we got together again for quite a cool project. And we we were there for, for 10 days on our own with uh, you know a couple of beers and a bit of wine and uh, and some cigarettes and and and, and a lot of uh, a lot of measurement equipment. And uh, this was amazing because it was yeah, even though in the field site in the Himalaya, we are also we don't see people, so we are far away from the last settlement. But there, you felt a bit more alone. Uh, on the on the flight back, the the helicopter pilot he he asked us if it's okay if he adds another three minutes to our scheduled flight time, which is you know relatively expensive in Greenland, of course, because he saw this very nice line going out uh, from the from our field location back to to Tula, and he really would like to fly along that. And so he, he, we said, yeah, sure. And he brought his GoPro. So he put the GoPro on the front of the helicopter. <laughs> and we had an ex soldier from, from Denmark who was like the liaison officer in Tula, who had been a paratrooper, I think it's called in English, right? So like a, he was a parachutist yeah. in, in the army. So he was also sitting in that helicopter. And then that helicopter pilot, he flew out like, a, you know, like an army pilot, basically, he would go around valleys, around corners, and suddenly you know, go up over over the, the terminus of, a, of, a, of of the glacier tongue that would you know crash into the water and super close to the surface like 15 meters and uh, so we were sitting there just uh, yeah eyes open for continuous uh, 30 minutes i guess uh this was this was an incredible uh this, i mean the nature there without the helicopter was already incredible but to see it this way all this transition from 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 land terrain, very gray rock and then green in between as well to water and then over the calving glaciers and then out over the calving glacier and then you have all the the ice flows with uh, the seals on top that that were jumping off because he was so he was flying so low uh, that was uh, you know and it looks at us uh, yeah that was that was very very impressive and for us was um, yeah that's something that I I will never forget um, also because field trip was great because it was between friends who who had a we think a great idea and uh, you know we did this all on us on the side basically this was not our main job this field trip but uh, we we did it as friends and that's how that's how field work is field work is exciting because the science is exciting but it's even more exciting if you can do it with people that you ha uh, enjoy hanging out with and we had the gun there and which was weird to me as well because in Himalaya we don't have that like you know going onto the yeah. ice with a gun on your back that's something that and I really I should not shoot because I'm very bad at that but so yeah for, for me it, uh, that, that was a that was a very memorable uh, field trip and and something that we, we hope we'll be able to do again but you didn't have to use the gun, I hope. Uh, no, no polar bear. No. I guess also a special thing in the Arctic that you just have to be aware of polar bears and 
yeah. that it can happen that they just enter your tent at some point. Yeah. Yeah, we have snow leopards in, in our valley that uh, they they are too scared of us. So <laughs> we just see them on our cameras, but uh, not uh, not in real life, unfortunately or fortunately. I mean, it could also kill you, but it really, it, 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 it wouldn't dare to get too close. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to talk about and share with us? And I won't interrupt you for the next couple of minutes. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, this is uh, smarter than it is, I guess. But uh, I mean, my experience, why, why I do, you know, why, I'm, why I am in academia and why I think it's hard at times, but why I still think it's worthwhile. But also, I think that a lot has to change in our, in our yeah, in our research culture. And this is... Um, this is a topic that has been amply discussed in, in by many people uh, in recent years, and it's getting more and more. It's getting a topic, but I, you know, I I, I wouldn't want to do any other job. I find this, uh, I find the work that I do super fascinating. I enjoy it a lot, and I also enjoy the, to some degree, also the bit, you know, the pushiness of academia. You try to to be a bit competitive, also to improve. The quality of uh, of our research by by trying harder. If you know, if you're a student who is a master student now, thinking about whether whether you want to do a PhD or 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 you don't want to, I think it's good to keep that in mind. That this is there is a lot of that. There is a lot of pushiness and a lot of uh, a lot of pressure, but there is ample possibility to find your own space within that. I think for everyone really and. Academia shouldn't be, and I think this is even at the you know primary school level, is far too much communicated in this way that you know if you're smart you should go to university and 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 if you're not smart enough then in in, in Austria we call it you go to Hauptschule and then you know you don't go to the gymnasium. This separation of of you know perceived intelligence or is is I think complete rubbish and I think it's also rubbish in in academia to a part we need we need people of uh, well we need people who are super sm super fast in calculating and you know being able to visualize uh, equations uh, on the go but we also need people who are not able to do that like me <laughs> who, who needs a lot of time to uh, to process that who you know who bring in other qualities because and, and who bring in qualities of making it a space that that allows us to collaborate if it's too much getting a race between people who are who are trying to be first, then I don't think I don't think overall quality of our work is is improving. And then perhaps going back to what we talked about before in the field that I that I work in, especially if you're a, you know if you're a particle physicist or if you then and, and if the distance from your research topic to the common you know the general population. If, if that is so large that it's difficult, that it needs many, many people in between, that's perhaps something different. But in our case, a lot of the research we do is supposed, and that's what we claim in all our papers, is supposed to be meaningful for, for people as well. So we, yeah, we also need, we also need people skills because we need to understand what people actually need and, and how they work and how other people work, how people who have never done a PhD and who have never worked in academia, how they work. It's possible to, you know, like in Big Bang Theory, like Sheldon Cooper, you can, of course, it's fine if people like him and they do exist, if they, if they advance some part of science and they can also survive and that's great. And I think they, they bring a great contribution. But it shouldn't be that that everyone that it should be the the, the prime aim is that everyone becomes you know the, the 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 super genius that is perceived to be the best of all of them. That that to some degree still is a bit what I feel is is a bit the case in academia at the moment. And I hope that uh, that students who are master students now who are intimidated by by that that they are not intimidated by it that they that they believe in themselves and that they also know that there are people around who who want to make academia a place where where everyone can thrive and not just because you know everyone should have a chance to thrive here but because it makes sense for science as well if people with many different qualities work here in 
I've worked in competitive environments. I, you know, I studied at the, at the university where in the first year of, of the bachelor, uh, so you, if you if you were not Swiss, you only got in if you passed an entrance exam or if you had really really high marks at at, at, at high school. So all all the guys, especially the the guys who who were not Swiss, this was not true for Swiss students, but for all the foreigners, they came. They thought that they are the best because they in their small village back home they were the greatest at high school. And. I think those who were still really good at the end of the bachelors were those who quickly realized that they're just one among many. Because those who, who did not want to let go of this idea that they are the best, they, it, they kind of ran against the wall at one point. Some managed to get through. These are like the Sheldon Coopers. Few of them survived. But many of them also, they, they, they were super frustrated by not being able to deal with the fact that they were not the best anymore. And, and they did not take the chance to learn how to how to how to coexist in, in in a wider community. So that that was also you know that was also true at ETH, which was very competitive. And I was I was lucky to get a lot of chances there because I I I, I managed to navigate that. I think I was not a very good student. I was so in terms of marks, my but I I, I made up with that perhaps a bit with. Uh, with street smarts and and enjoying being around people and and I feel you know I, I I'm I'm successful in what I do by the definition of success being that I enjoy what I do and I am because I enjoy working with other people and I think that should that is not the most important thing in science but it is one very very essential um, aspect and and people who are good at that and who may be a bit slower calculating equations. Um, they are they are they are needed and i hope that there will be more of them in academia in future and like i said before as well i think we are at a point in science in academia where there's a transition where it is up to our generation to to help make it a to help make it a space where where people don't just break down because there are many who do break down because of the of the increased stress that is being exerted on them not just young phd students even you know accomplished postdocs and even professors who who realize that they they are in a in a in a hamster wheel that they don't get out anymore for what we produce that's not worth it because we are not that important it's always good to have a diversity in science so that brings us to the end of another episode of polar times thank you for coming back and listening to the podcast if you want to get in contact with us suggest a guest or ask a question then you can email us at these are at gmail.com or you can tweet apex at apex pol at polar underscore research that's it for today thank you very much for coming to polar times jacob and um, sharing your inspiring stories with us Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it a lot and uh, looking forward to many more interesting podcasts.